0: Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is listener and that's what you do. You listen. Not gonna have a big rant today, guys. Actually gonna have no rant. So, good. Sometimes it's good to have a little break from, you know my my feelings and thoughts and critiques and looks at the world because who am i right i'm nobody special sure you're listening to my podcast and i'm not listening to yours but maybe oh my god could there be more sirens outside my door right now they this better be a big emergency there better be a fire at an orphanage oh oh you're gonna not only sirens you're gonna beep the horn there better be a hospital fire there better be a frickin' uh, just uh a, a earthquake at a nursing home, a localized nursing home earthquake to have that, that level of sirens and rigmarole and fucking... Anyway, guys, on today's show, Paul Gilmartin. Paul is um, an incredibly talented comedian, TV personality, hosted a show for many years called um, Dinner in a Movie that I used to love for over like a decade and, and he found so much success in entertainment and showbiz and then years ago pivoted and started a podcast called The Mental Illness Happy Hour, which my friend Fallon turned me on to and it's just a place to listen to others stories about their challenges when it comes to mental illness to depression anxiety um, and and but more so just being like a human on this earth and having a human experience and the challenges that come with just sometimes existing and I would I would say that it, it's it's almost impossible not to identify with one of the episodes and find a bit of a reprieve knowing that there are other people um, going through similar feelings and emotions to you. So go subscribe to the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's one of my favorite podcasts. There's a link in the show notes, liner notes. Fuck, I don't don't even know where to find that. But I, I imagine you guys are much smarter than I, so... Anyway, subscribe to the podcast immediately, um, but I so enjoyed sitting down with Paul, and I hope you guys like it. Enjoy. Paul Gilmartin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Man the girl.
0: We're, you know, we're, in case you listeners are wondering, we're just contemplating murdering Paul Stuck. <laughs> How we start a podcast here?
1: she doesn't know that her life rests in the hands of people deciding how annoying she's she's going to be for the next forty five minutes to an hour. Yeah. How's my level?
0: Outstanding, crispy. Okay. I mean, okay. I'm always uh nervous interviewing a fellow podcaster, really? Yeah, right? I
1: guess there's certain people that I that I get nervous interviewing, and it's not necessarily that I am seeking their approval. It's that I, the producer in me is like, is this going to be interesting mm. to the listeners? And I put that pressure on myself, even though I have a chance to edit afterwards. But I think that's also probably my age, because uh, there's a part of me that has given up trying to be loved that's not exactly true there's a part of me that definitely wants to be loved but it it is uh it it is tired it has slumped shoulders that part of me you know what i mean it's just like there's too many other things that are important in life you know i have enough friends i don't need everybody to love me but that instinct is always there
0: Isn't that such a gift of age? Is just sort of a bit of exhaustion with yourself. Yeah, Yeah,
1: it really is. Finding out what you're not good at and making peace with it is awesome because nobody's great at everything.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: You know, there's something really nice about that. Every once in a while, I'll play hockey with, with Bill Burr. And, you know, Bill just is such a great comedian. You know, one of the best comedians working and a great actor, and I enjoy seeing him out there struggling to skate well.
0: Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I wonder if that kills him because he's so good at certain things yeah. and mediocre at others.
1: Well, you know, he makes fun of himself. Uh, <laughs> you know, he'll be the first one to tell you that he's not a, he's not a great hockey player. But, you know, he has fun. And he loves the sport, and, and, and that's what matters. But I don't like that part of myself that is like, oh, good. Here's something I'm better than somebody at. It's right. like so, I don't know, petty. But it, aren't we always looking for some way to measure ourselves on the curve of humanity? I think that's why I watch li- like watching Hitler documentaries, because I'm like, I'm a good dude.
0: Yes. Against Hitler, yeah, For sure, I'm killing it. Yeah. Wow,
1: that's a bad choice of words, but yeah.
0: <laughs> not as much as he was killing it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting dichotomy. I've heard this idea of when people get to their sixties and seventies, and reasonably, unless you're a total crotchety old bastard, mm-hmm. people seem to like soften. Mm-hmm. Even like the meanest bastard father, you know, seems to so- suddenly have a little pep in his step. And I've heard, you can attribute it to a little dementia light. Really? That your brain has just forgotten some shit.
1: Childhood shit or just shit with the people you're being nicer to or, or, or all of the above?
0: I think so. Like generally, you've your brain has just let go of some past trauma, experience, memory, so that you're not as much bogged down in what you were bogged down by the first 50 years of your life. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
1: So I actually haven't put the work in. I'm just closer to death. Death is taking care of it for me. My brain's slowly dying. Don't you deserve it? It's doing all the work. (laughs) Thank you, brain.
0: (laughs) I (laughs) mean, at this... But, you know, you live long enough. I feel like, God, can't can't nature at least give us this, sort of a bit of a natural antidepressant?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, and I think getting a sense of your mortality... Uh, My sense of mortality, I vividly remember it happening over the course of of several months. I was 32 years old, and I had a brand new Jeep, and I was driving late at night, coming home from a stand-up gig, doing 55 through Iowa, actually probably even faster than that, and hit a full-size deer.
0: Jeez. And,
1: And it fortunately killed it, um, totaled my car. And when I called for assistance, I remember my voice being surprised at how much my voice was shaking and how much my hands were shaking. And I don't think I had ever felt that before. And then two months later, moved here to LA a week before the Northridge earthquake and just looked death in the face thought for sure I was going to die and that those two things really I think changed killed that young part of me that's like I'm never going to die I'm never going to get old
0: right what was you know as a as Angelino you hear about it all the time mm. whenever you have we have a little little earthquake or we had one pretty big mm. one the last mm. 6 weeks But people will always say, yeah, but it wasn't Northridge. Yeah. What was that like?
1: Northridge, most earthquakes that I've experienced are rolling and fairly quiet. You may hear a couple of things shaking a little bit. Northridge was like, uh, it was vertical. So it was, you'd go up a foot, you go down a foot in the span of a second, and it was like the deepest, loudest roar that I've ever heard in my life. It was deafening. It was like a mosquito being in the mouth of an angry lion. And it went on for 30 seconds. It, the noise scared me more than anything. It, it was so violent. I, I can't even... Yeah. The, the the It was so deep. Yeah. The sound was so deep. It was... It, yeah, I had rashes from just stress afterwards. Like even though I was exhausted, I, I, I couldn't sleep. I had to take medication just to fall asleep for months. And then the aftershocks suck because it starts to sound like it's happening again. So it's like getting hit by a car, and then once an hour you hear screeching brakes for six months.
0: Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I remember there's that Dane Cook joke where he talks about when you hear screeching and all you think in your head is, Yes <laughs> I'm gonna see one. Right. And I remember I did, I remember only once in my life I heard the screech, I turned, a car got turned over on its side mm-hmm. and I've I'll never quite understand what this this wonderfully courageous civilian felt why they felt the need to rip their shirt off. A guy rips his shirt off and then dives into the car to get the person out, like to free them from wow. the overturned car. But why take your shirt off?
1: Wow. That's LA, huh? Yeah. He, he took his shirt off. He quickly shaved, mm. shaved his chest, bless and him. then he did his
0: business. God yes. bless. And he got he got a five-episode arc on CSI Miami that yeah. same day.
1: Yeah. Uh, shirtless character.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> shirtless it's man
1: shirtless hero number two <laughs> And they've talked about he's he's going around town frustratingly pitching shirtless hero yeah but people are like i don't know it's a little specific
0: he's trying to ride but,
1: it yeah and who can blame him who can blame him
0: so you from the midwest chicago From
1: chicago yeah
0: what was it like growing up there
1: uh very suburban um safe neighborhood you know you could leave your doors open but uh pretty racist. I grew Mm. up in the south suburbs, and it's very segregated.
0: Highland Park?
1: Uh, No, that's north. Okay, That's north. uh, Homewood, which is like 180th south. And uh, just a lot of racism. A lot of racism. Not a lot of understanding uh, of each other. And it's going back there is uh, it's nice to see some of the people, but some of them, I just don't have the tolerance for that anymore. I've had to unfriend a couple on Facebook because they're just... And the funny thing is, is most of them are devout Catholics.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Facebook is basically just a running tab of how racist your childhood friends have become. Right? <laughs> That's
1: such a good way of putting it. It really is. It's the, it's the place to find out who hasn't grown.
0: Yes. Yeah. And you told this great story uh, when you interviewed Teresa Strasser on your podcast about how you always remember this moment of when your dad would put you to sleep as a kid mm-hmm. and would carry you and you would kind of like, <laughs> this is a- uh, Gracie. Gracie, Paul's adorable dog, just in case you hear her in the background, but how you would hit like a part of the-, the Ceiling. Ceiling. Yeah every time he would take you to bed mm-hmm. and then someone had advised him that maybe he shouldn't be taking you my to bed my mom
1: your mom was afraid that because of my dad's drinking that he was going to molest me you know which is you know i give my mom props for coming forward and apologizing for that years later because i didn't know why it stopped. My dad was a pretty distant guy to begin with, really lost in his own head. Um, uh, not abusive, unless you consider neglect a form of abuse, which I guess it, it it is. Sure. All the material things were provided for. He made sure I got good grades. You know, the bills were always paid, stuff like that. Um, but it turns out my mom was the creepy one. Yeah.
0: So, it, that brings me to the idea of like, I always it seems as though for for many of us we operate with some level of impunity during our adolescence, right? Mm-hmm. That the neuroses and and sort of the um, the the discomfort of of you know our of adulthood. Sort of doesn't creep in till hopefully at least our teens, right? right? So, what was it like for you? Did you was there any grace period as a kid, or you learned early on that like ah, something's not right here?
1: It it, it was unconscious. Mm. There was always uh, kind of a searching for identity, but I, I think that's common for a lot of kids, and you don't know that you don't know your issues generally until you experience something that's counter to them later in life. It wasn't really until uh, my ex, I met her family and experienced her mom who was loving and had boundaries and didn't drink me in with her eyes that I realized how uncomfortable I was around my mom and Mm. that a mom didn't have to be the way my mom was and you know i i i don't want to totally throw my mom under uh, under the bus because there were really great things she was one of the few people in our neighborhood to stand up against racism to to speak out against it and um but there were these blind spots that that that, that she had that um i just i i think she's a sick person. She's a wounded person. She had a terrible childhood and that doesn't excuse the things that she did, but it certainly makes them less inconceivable.
0: How did they present themselves?
1: Treating me like a spouse, you know, uh, treating me like her therapist when I was seven, breaking down and, you know, crying about her marriage and, and I had to comfort her and, um, uh, chiding me if if I didn't want to be naked in front of her, um, taking my temperature rectally till I was eight years old and asking why are we still doing it this way.
0: Howard Stern, too, you know. Didn't didn't he? Yeah, Yeah. he talks about that.
1: Yeah, it's... uh, Moms can get away with a lot of shit because of access to their child's bodies. And I think um, a lot of sick mothers get their... I don't know, whatever payoff it is they're looking for from ways that are more covert. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a great book about covert incest uh, by a guy named Kenneth Adams, and it's called Silently Seduced. And that book really, that and therapy and support groups helped me make sense of why I feel the way I do. Gracie, could you possibly make more noise? (laughs) It helped me make sense of... Um, why I have trouble trusting? Why I start to feel suffocated by responsibility? Um, why I have difficulty with boundaries, not only setting my own, but um, you know, sometimes respecting other people's boundaries? Why I can be so narcissistic and self-absorbed? And uh, you know, one of the effects it had on me, and maybe I shouldn't blame it on this, but I objectified women for years. I was a pig. I was a philanderer. Um, I didn't, not only did I not really care after I had sex with a woman, but it wouldn't even occur to me to call and check in and and connect to the human being, you know, that had the sex parts. Yeah. And it really bummed me out when I began to kind of heal and become more aware of of my issues at how many women I had hurt or disrespected um but the good news was was you know I feel like now I'm definitely more conscious of that that part of me, and I don't have the desire to you know go out and and use women i'm in a loving committed monogamous relationship and there's a lot of trust there and yeah we have our little issues here and there that we work through but um it's it it shows me that wounds can heal and people can change it just takes a lot of work and and it's so ungraceful sometimes
0: do you think that also culturally and it's more so for men but women too that there's just this idea of like, you have to accept the fact that men are just going to be dogs for a while.
1: I, I believe that for a long time. And while I don't doubt that there might be some genetic component to that and that there's some societal stuff that does that as well, you know, we're scared. We want to cry. Sometimes we want our mommy. uh Sometimes we just want to be held and comforted. And to me, that's what a real man is. And some of my support groups, uh, I, there are guys that you know were bouncers at Hell's Angel bars that'll cry yeah. in our meetings, and and we support each other. And that's a real man. It's it, you, you don't. It's not bravery to stuff your feelings away. It's bravery to to share them and to risk somebody thinking that you're weak, but. For me, when I found that support community of men who who didn't shun their masculinity at all, we just added this softer side to it. Or, or I wouldn't even say we added it. We just got in touch with it. And that's how, for me, how the healing really, really happened. But to go back to your question, um, I th- I think men and women are a lot more alike than we, than we think they are. Um, and I think the more we become open about these things as a society, the more we'll see this. And, and I think people coming out um, finally feeling free and safe enough to say, I'm non-binary, I think this is good also for helping that conversation so we can stop thinking so much in terms of um, black and white all or none.
0: Do you think that, and this is like total armchair uh, psychology, um, that for someone like your mom or women in general who have that kind of relationship with their son, do you think that perhaps it's born out of such a sort of disillusionment, disappointment in men prior to them having a son? And then once they do, it becomes their like their prototype, like something they have full control over. I think
1: I, yes, I do think that that is probably a part of it, and I think the other part is the feeling of control. That here's a male that I'm not controlled by. I mean, like if I look at the shit that my mom had to had to go through as a kid, having a father abandon her, then have a mother abandon her and left to be raised by friends where the father's alcoholic. Uh, I I can't imagine what a piece of trash she probably felt like. And to, to have a child that is from your own body must be a very easy thing to become mesmerized by yeah. when you have no sense of self to all of a sudden, cause we can't see ourselves. So to have something that is part of you that you can see, uh, if we're self obsessed in survival mode to begin with, it must be really easy to just ignore our pain and pour all of our attention and look for all our needs in the most convenient Place possible, which is somebody in our family, especially when your husband is drunk and you know wants nothing to do with you, sitting at the end of the couch looking at sports.
0: Is it amazing when you track genera- generationally how things have to slowly become better, mm-hmm. even when it's it's incremental and it sounds much like? Yeah, I think about my my mom's parents whose dad, my mom's dad died of alcoholism at 50. Like, ate, drank, smoked 10 cigars a day, raged, dropped dead at 50. Was nice enough to give, you know, uh, addiction to my mom. And at 28, she discovered 12 Step and really started working on herself. But, you know, had a kid and, and did the very best she could and, and I, I inherited this thing as well. And now I have a son who's eight months, and I'm a sober guy. But if you track it, starting three generations back, my kid has a pretty good chance of only being mildly dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. But it took generations to correct. Yeah, Isn't that un- – I mean, and that sounds like what you're saying a little bit.
1: Yeah, and in the long run, who who knows? Uh, hopefully, it, it moves forward and each generation becomes – um, a, a little less wounded than the the one before, especially as society kind of becomes more open and, and educated. Uh, but yeah, I'm fascinated by that. and also, the intergenerational trauma of whole people being persecuted, you know, which I'm sure is not lost on on you. Uh, those ripples, Last hundreds, hundreds of years. They yeah. in, inform the personalities and beliefs of entire communities, you know, not in a monolithic way, but certainly uh, it, those ripples are, are there. Uh, the inability to trust and relax and, and to feel safe walking about in the world and to have hope and be optimistic. I mean, that's going to affect your kid.
0: So is it dealing with what you dealt with as a as a kid? Is it any surprise that you're funny?
1: Oh no, no! <laughs> I I was funny because I had to be. Right. I wasn't funny because I chose to be. It was it was my sense of identity.
0: Uh, and were you distracting? Were you there to lighten the mood when things got too intense at home?
1: Yeah, yeah. My house was uh, it wasn't a violent or loud place, but it was. Uh, very often uncomfortably quiet. Uh, My ex, when she first started hanging around my family, she comes from a very loud Italian, kind of stereotypical Italian-American family. A
0: lot of communicating.
1: Yes, a lot (laughs) of communicating, a lot of laughter, sometimes yelling, but, but not stuffing. Yeah. And my family was just all about stuffing it, and it drove her crazy.
0: Could you feel it when you'd walk into your house? Could you I, cut the air?
1: I, could, I think other people mm. could feel it. Uh, I remember being a kid and my friends saying to me, why does your dad mad at me? And I said, that's just his face.
0: Oh. oh, man.
1: I remember one time, and I'm sure there were others, but there's only one time that I can remember my entire family laughing hard. Together.
0: What was the moment?
1: I was out of college and we were at my brother's. He lived in an apartment and it was my parents, my brother. I think he had a date. I can't remember. And my grandmother. And I don't even remember what we were laughing about, but I remember it just struck me like, oh my God, I've never experienced this before. Um, yeah, there's a, definitely an intensity in my family that. I have inherited that I really struggle to try to lighten up. Uh, My ex, I think, helped me with that, and I think my support groups helped me with it, and I try to be conscious of it, but it's so easy for me to take the most mundane things really seriously. And I guess, like the first time I, I, I was even aware of it, Somebody said, oh, yeah, uh, such and so-and-so and and I were talking about you, and we were just laughing about how intense you are. And that was news to me. I thought I was laid back just because I was funny.
0: Yeah. So when, when do you start taking comedy seriously?
1: I remember being about 11 or 12 and watching The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was host and thinking, boy, I would love to do that. Not in a realistic way. Uh, And I remember watching stand-ups and and seeing other people laugh at their jokes and wondering why I wasn't laughing at their jokes and then realizing, oh, I guess I'm studying. Hmm. I'm studying them. But it wasn't until I took uh, an acting class in college. I was pre-med and there was a stand-up competition and my roommate talked me into joining it. And I thought, well, I'm terrified of being on stage. I'm going to take an acting class and see if I can, that'll help me relax. Yeah. And I fell in love with acting and changed my major to to theater. And so when I got out of college, my hope was not to do stand-up, but to be maybe in Second City or be an actor. And that dream was very short-lived. And so it's like there was only one choice, which... Was stand-up, which I'd wanted to do all along, but I was just terrified of being up there and being so exposed. And um, by maybe three or four months of doing open mics, uh, I think I started to feel confident. And after a year of doing it, I was able to quit my day job and um, do it full-time.
0: It's funny what you were saying about Johnny Carson and studying the comedians, because what I found being around stand-ups is the greatest... Feedback you can get from a comedian is, oh, that's very funny, mm-hmm. and you want to say, well, why didn't you laugh? But that's not in them. Right. They're they're studying it like they're looking for the rivets. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So true. And and or, or the ultimate compliment is, fuck, I wish I'd written that. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few comics that make me laugh out loud because they're they'll do something that's so off the beaten track or so dark that that I will laugh out loud. But I would say if even watching my favorite stand ups, sometimes I won't even laugh out loud, but I'll enjoy the hell out of it.
0: Burr. Burr's Burr, pretty Dave Chappelle.
1: Great. Uh, Patton Oswalt. Um,
0: Sebastian's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Norm MacDonald. So good. Have you seen uh, Hitler's Dog? That stand-up special, oh my god. There's this bit in it, I won't ruin it, but there's a bit in it about Lee Majors that I guarantee if you watch it, you will laugh out loud and you'll know the part that I'm talking
0: about. I love it. I I was recently watching just a compilation on YouTube entitled Norm MacDonald Saves Interviews and it's him as the second guest.
1: Oh, unbelievable how much he chimes in and just takes over.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So how come Second City didn't work out?
1: I went through their training program and auditioned and didn't get in. Hmm. And I remember at my day job going into the bathroom and going into a stall and just crying. Oh. Yeah. And saying, well, I guess I'll, uh, I'll do stand-up now.
0: I guess yeah. my, that dream is done.
1: Yeah. And you know who else I think is an amazing stand-up? Uh, and I'm glad she did stand-up again is uh, Ellen DeGeneres.
0: Uh, why, I think widely amongst comedians, considered one of the best, yeah, right? Yeah. What? Why is that? Well, for
1: one, her delivery is unique and it adds so much to her jokes, her inflections, uh, her facial gestures, and and the writing is good. It's it's. Uh, she's just. I've always always enjoyed her her stand up. And there's a ton of other stand-ups that I'm not uh, able to to think of right now but yeah.
0: And it's it's probably the blessing and the curse of taking in quotes a day job like she took, mm-hmm. right? Because maybe she she loses a bit of that like cool factor amongst mm-hmm. people and comedians that she's not you know participating there, but she's so ubiquitous and and rich that's like who cares
1: (laughs) yeah and she's not on the road having her soul being ground into pulp i don't know anybody that's been on the road for more than five ten years Uh, let's put it this way i don't know anybody over 35 that loves the road or very few people
0: you have to be an alcoholic who's still drinking. Yes. And not married.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. So true. Yeah. So true.
0: I do college gigs now because of getting some, you know, social media, uh, fame and, and I'll go for, you know, I'll do 10 a year. So not bad. I just got back from Texas Christian university and I'm a sober guy who's married. And so I get back to my room And other than masturbating, (laughs) I've got nothing going on. And I literally think, oh, this is why road comics kill themselves. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was not shocked. It's not stand-up comedy, but I remember watching uh, Anthony Bourdain do his show years ago and thinking, if I had that schedule, I would kill myself because he's on the road constantly and... He's constantly drinking. Yeah. And that's one of the things that just drove me to, to my knees was the, the, the drinking. And I hated being on the road after a certain point. It would be great to go out for two days once a month. That I would be excited about. But anything more than that, I was tired of my act. I was tired of hotel rooms, tired of airports, tired of watching the other act. Uh, tired of small talk so many things and and I was not surprised sadly when he killed himself because I thought those are the two biggest things that contributed to my depression um, was the the drinking and the isolation
0: yeah it's I mean you can speak to this but it's it's when you see, it's usually a tweet of some sort, but it'll say the face of depression, and it's Bourdain and Robin Williams mm-hmm. and the plethora of other people that have taken their lives who were sort of like the poster children for the life everyone wanted.
1: Right. You would know this because you have experience being in in show business and, and getting some notoriety, is people only think about the romantic parts of notoriety, uh, or popularity, they don't think about all the little things. They don't think about the nasty email that you get from somebody that thinks just because you've got so many followers that you're invincible to somebody saying something mean about you or all the people that want something from you. You know, you have, you have eight, point something million instagram followers yeah i can't imagine how many people want something from you uh people think it's just gifts and swag and freebies but they don't realize how many people are just
0: barnacles to that honeypot it's a, yeah, it's really, it's really specific existence, especially, and I'm sure you're, you know, plenty of people. I know plenty of people that love the rap party and they love to go to the premiere of movies they're not in or go to award mm-hmm. shows when they're not nominated. They they want to play the game and go to the Soho House like they're all about it. And so
1: they enjoy small talk.
0: God God bless them.
1: Yeah, I I wish I was one of them.
0: It ain't me either. No. No.
1: No. It's excruciating for <laughs> yes. me. What relaxes me is sitting down and talking about. Hey, when was the last time you wanted to jump off a bridge or you just felt like one? What was the 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 point of life <laughs> and why get up if you have to do laundry?
0: Yeah. So was that the impetus to start the pod?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I went off my meds in in 2010 and thought I was out of the woods and then it came back.
0: I want to, before, because I want to track it right. Will you tell me like when the first sort of wave of depression, you noticed it or experienced it and then led to you taking medicine for it?
1: I th- well, I think it started when I was a kid because I remember having to think about things in the future sometimes that I had to look forward to to get me out of feeling what I was feeling. Mm. Um, but as far as it becoming really an issue, suicidal ideation, it was probably in my mid-30s and I was uh, my drinking got to the point where I was drinking every, every night. Uh, often to excess, but I, yes. I was kind of a high-bottom drunk, and then I didn't get DUIs. I didn't drink during the day. Uh, Respectable. Never... Yes. Come a on. Classy. Telling you. Classy. My man. Always drinking a top hat and tail.
0: <laughs> Monica. Uh,
1: but it, it, it got to the point where the only time I felt any freedom was when I was loaded, and I knew that was making me more depressed. And so uh, in... 2000, I didn't get sober, but I went to, to see a psychiatrist and got First put time. Yes. And got put on meds and that helped a little bit, but still drinking, uh, they, they don't really have a chance to do their job. So in 03 I really hit, hit my bottom where I knew I was going to kill myself if I didn't quit drinking. And then I feel like I really had a chance to, to deal with the depression. and. I asked my psychiatrist one time what what do you call what I have and he said treatment resistant depression due to childhood adversity and I've struggled a lot with trying to find the right combination of meds uh, you know I got to hit it on a lot of different fronts uh, you know I need some type of spiritual life, I need to exercise, I need to try to not eat too much sugar, blah, blah, blah,
0: blah, blah. Did any, did the psychiatrist while you were drinking, did anyone say, when you asked, like, what do you call this, did they say alcoholism?
1: Well, he said to me, if you don't go get help for your drinking, I refuse to treat you anymore.
0: And, and that that's that, a bit of a, somewhat of a standard, or more so, right? I
1: had been to other psychiatrists that hadn't done that. For me, wow. and I am so grateful that that he did that because that was the wake up call that that I needed. Um, and so, meds would work, and then slowly, they'd their effectiveness would kind of fall away, and, and never to the point where I was, be, you know, before I got help and before I started taking meds. But to the point where I would be up for two hours you know, sleep till noon and I'd have to be taking a nap at two because it was just the world was too much. And in 2010, I, for some reason, decide, I think because I, I had done some diet and cleansed my colon and thought, oh, that's the problem. I knew it. I can go off my meds now. My psychiatrist said, I strongly urge you not to do this. And I thought, He doesn't know what he's talking about. No, Doc. He went to Harvard. (laughs) I was pre-med.
0: It's Candida,
1: Doc. That's right. It's my gut biome. Right. And not that that's not a real thing, but for clinical depression, uh, I think that's one of the solutions, not the, the solution. Yeah. So I went off my meds, and normally when I would go off them within a week, a month, Two, three months max, the depression would come back. Mm. This time, it was gone for about five months. And so I thought I was out of the woods. And then the sadness came back. And What does I, it feel like when it comes creeping back? A sense of dread about everything. Uh, sadness. Just uh, like I'm walking th- through mud, not literally, but figuratively, everything is an effort. Mm. And it's so hard to feel joy from the things that would normally bring me joy. So I would stop woodworking. I would stop um, playing guitar. I would still play hockey. That was about the the only really kind of healthy self-care I would do. And I would obsessively maybe play video games, uh, maybe eat ice cream. But sometimes when it's really bad, I wouldn't eat anything. My appetite would be totally gone and I would just lose a, a bunch of weight. And it's funny because people would be like, you look great. And I'd Ugh. be thinking, you have no idea how badly I want to put a
0: gun in my mouth right now. But it's not bad looking great, no. You know,
1: you're going to you're gonna go. Your last pictures are going to look sweet f- at the funeral. People are going to be like, look at that chiseled jaw.
0: When I was high on cocaine mm-hmm. <laughs> towards the end of my run, yeah, I remember staring in the mirror with my shirt off Watching my heart beat through my sternum. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time thinking, I'm pretty sure I'm a size 30 waist.
1: (laughs) I so get that. Yeah. I so get that. Yeah. When I realized it was a depression, I went, oh my God. And and I got back on my meds immediately and started feeling better. I thought, fuck, I've been... In support groups, therapy, seeing a psychiatrist for 10 years, and I got fooled by this. Imagine somebody out there that thinks depression is a weakness. Mm. Imagine how far that person is, how much they need to be educated or enlightened uh, uh, about this, or just hear people tell their stories. And that was the impetus to start the podcast, because I thought, you can't really talk about anxiety and depression and addiction and childhood trauma in a 10-minute magazine piece you need to hear somebody tell their story for 45 minutes an hour gruesome details and all including the laughter Hmm. and essentially what what we experience in support groups the power of somebody's story can get through in a way that Somebody, quote-unquote, educating you never, never can. And so that's why I started uh, the podcast, because I thought um, maybe this will be an accessible way to to help people. Um, I never really imagined that it was going to take off or that I would one day support myself, because I was still doing TV at that point. Uh, I I, I never imagined it. And and that's probably good, because I probably would have created it in a different way that would have fucked it up
0: yeah do you think it's interesting because i can only speak for when i talk about my disease of alcoholism i always say that the the aha moment or the seminal moment of my life was walking into a support group a 12-step meeting and that my entire life i had walked around feeling like I was reasonably articulate and intelligent, and I couldn't tell you how I felt. Mm -hmm. It seemed so specific to me. (laughs) Because was I depressed? Yeah. Did I have anxiety? Yeah, I have some of that. Discontent. I'm uncomfortable. But I can't find a diagnosis for what's going on up here. So I must be the only person feeling this way. And then when I walked into the rooms and heard other people talking the way I felt, I said, oh, my God. This is the seminal moment of my life.
1: This is home. This is a fork in the road. Yeah, Yeah. I broke down and cried because I walked in there not sure if I even belonged there. And by the end of that first meeting, I knew I was either going to die or I was going to throw my lot in with these people who seemed oddly happy.
0: Yes. I mean, that was, wasn't it the most revealing part where you walk in and these people think and feel the way we do but they're not shattered. Right. They're they're taking the piss out of each other.
1: Right. They've they found tools and they're actually grateful that the horror drove them to the tools. Yeah. That that blew my mind cuz I thought it was just about not drinking. I didn't realize that it. it was a a whole shift in perception and actions and the byproduct of that would be the joy and the peace and the feelings that I thought fame and notoriety and money were going to bring me
0: to that point. Like you've had so much success as an actor comedian. And, you know, I remember watching you uh, on dinner, dinner in a movie, you know, this was especially growing up, like, most Saturday nights, I was home, you know, and this was like stoked, a little funny interstitial in between a rerun, a liar, liar, or whatever we were watching. Were there moments where you were like, wow, I'm, I'm a successful comedian, making a good living. Everything on paper seems to be fine. And yet I still can't feel okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that scared me. Uh, I used to always think if I could like when i would drive down sunset boulevard and you'd see somebody's face on the billboard i would think they've officially made it i haven't because my show's not on network tv <laughs> right it's on cable tv and uh, you know the, it's the movie we're, you know we're just the sidekick to the movie and blah 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 and one year they put a the show put a billboard on Sunset Boulevard and I went and I looked at it and not only did I not feel anything, I felt less respect for Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I was kidding, but that, that was one of the things that led, led me to realize, oh, there's something bottomless ah. inside me. And of course, when I got to my support groups, I found out it's that that's because I was just trying to feed my ego and not I was never thinking about anybody else or if it was convenient I would think about somebody else so I thought like oh I'm this great guy you know that yeah has these issues but I couldn't see how narcissistic and frightened I was that I was in survival mode and when I see somebody really being a dick I my first instinct is to judge them And it's not that I'm going to tolerate their shit, but I feel compassion for them underneath that because I think most people that are dicks are just in survival mode. And they're so full of self because they feel so awful in their skin
0: it's hard it, i i agree and in moments of like grace and total spiritual fitness i feel like i can do that and then catch me in the wrong moment and i am just a collector of injustice oh yeah how dare you act that oh, way yeah and now i'm righteous sure because i'm sober and right. i think i've got the golden ticket yeah what did it ever work? Was there ever a moment somewhere in the 2000s where you're like making money? You got the billboard. You're like, hey, I am feel all right. There were fleeting
1: moments of it. Um, yeah, fleeting moment. I, we got nominated for a cable ace award one year and I remember getting a tuxedo and walking down the red carpet and, you know, the camera on me as they announce, you know, of course I didn't win, uh, <laughs> But feeling like, oh, I'm in show business. I'm a part of the club. I've always wanted to feel a part of the club. And it's so funny that my support groups are the club that make me feel a part of the planet now. They're, and I think if I've learned anything, it's that authenticity is where it's at. Mm. And it takes time to find out who we are, what our truths are, what we like, what we don't like, where are our boundaries, what are our needs. Um, are we connecting to other people? Um, are we considerate of, of others without sacrificing who we are? And once I began to feel that, then I felt like, Oh, this is success. Yeah. This is success. It's, you've heard of, um, I think it's called Maslow's hierarchy. It's like at the bottom, it's a pyramid at the bottom. It's like food, water, you know, needs, etc. And then above it, it's like love, friendship. And the very top one is self-actualization, uh, you know, i.e. authenticity, who, who you being true to yourself Yeah. And finding, and I think it's impossible without a sense of meaning and purpose, you know, i.e., connectiveness to humanity. And I don't think it means that we have to love everybody and understand everybody, but we got to find our tribe and put our walls down and trust.
0: Yeah. It's, uh,. I think, you know, there's uh, that great Gary Shandling quote when I watched his documentary where he talked about letting go of the old story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's just, for, and I can only speak from my own experience, it has been the most challenging, nuanced, surreptitious unraveling that I could have ever imagined because my identity was attached to so many things out of my control mm-hmm. and and buried deep inside me in places that you know it's funny I heard someone say this at a at a meeting once, and it's I, I remember it it really hitting me, and she said, You know, we work on our character defects, and we ask God to remove them from us and she said. But if you really want to become spiritual, what are you willing to give up that's between you and God, whatever your understanding of a higher power is? She's like, because it'll be those character defects, but but then maybe it'll be that job you think that defines you Mm -hmm. or that relationship you think you can't live without. What are you willing to give up? And that, for me, has been the gut punch of a lifetime.
1: Yeah, I I had to envision the worst materialistically situation, and I suppose health-wise as well, and ask myself, will I be able to find peace? You know, if let's say I you know, something horribly horrible happened to my health and then I was dependent on people to take care of me, or I found myself in a one bedroom apartment in a horrible place in town and I couldn't afford air conditioning and it was loud outside and all I had was a bed and a couple of books would I be able to find peace and I and I imagined myself in that situation being able to find peace because I imagined the friendships that that I would have and that I would look to them then for for something, and a spiritual life to fill that, I guess, that, that place that material stuff sometimes does. And I think that, that was important for me to picture the worst, to be able to let go of some of the things. But uh, it's definitely not consistent that I Am able to let go of the idea of poverty or health horrors.
0: Did it was, was there apprehension, especially? Not only are you a performer and and an entertainer, but a comedian specifically. Your currency is your facilities, your ability in which to yeah. pull words and to quickly reference things. I mean. Comedians are inherently smarter than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And was there an apprehension to start taking medicine with the worry that maybe it would um, get in the way of that?
1: I have experienced that. And it's one of the reasons I've done the the med dance. And I would say that comedians in some ways are smarter than the average person, in some ways are dumber than (laughs) the average person. Uh, We definitely have have blind spots. Um, Lamictal was one of the meds that my shrink thought might have been making it difficult for me to find words, form sentences. And so we tried going off it recently, and the depression came roaring back. Uh, But fortunately, around the same time, I started taking fish oil. And here's the caveat, my shrink said, you shouldn't take fish oil because it increases your chance of prostate cancer. But I I would rather live a shorter life than live a longer life, not able to function the way I would like to function. And so the fish oil has helped with the cognition and, and finding the words. Um, but there are still days when I feel like, oh my God, if this... What, what would happen if this gets worse and I can't do my podcast anymore? What, and and then I just have to go to faith and just say, you know, I've been through a lot of shit in my years on earth and I found a way to, to make it work and, um, to expect life to not have challenges is, is unrealistic. What I do hope for is peace in the middle of the challenge. And that I think is doable because of the, what I've learned in support groups and, you know, and it's human connection, it's friendship, it's service, meaning, purpose, and sometimes just not doing anything but being kind to myself and taking a day off.
0: Raisin bran. Raisin bran, sweet sweet raisin bran. Great bowl of raisin. Bran. Oh my God. Rb. I uh, I interviewed this guy Phil Stutz, who is has this sort of moniker of the psychiatrist to the stars Mm -hmm. (laughs) and has worked with a a great guy, written a bunch of books and worked with a bunch of uh, really famous people. And I I posed the same question to him. I said, are most people nervous about taking medication because it will rewire or uh, affect their artistry? And he says, all of them.
1: Yeah, I was.
0: And I said, and how many of them are find that it affects them negatively in that way he said none Yep. and he's like because it doesn't it it only gets rid of what's been inhibiting that your artistry it gets rid of the am i good enough or i shouldn't say gets rid of but it manages it Mm -hmm. helps manage it instead of getting rid of you know the good shit
1: yeah if 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 you're an an artist who is fueled by anger Meds will not make it impossible for you to get in touch with anger, but what it will help with, potentially, is your anger not crippling your personal relationships. Mm. That's what I found is it, it expanded the number of colors I have to choose from in however I'm creating something. Uh, it you know, the, the colors I had before I started getting help and, and taking meds, it was really just anger, really just anger. And since then, I've been able to find ways to be silly in my, my comedy and, uh, take chances. I was afraid to take chances. Uh, when I got sober, um, I just felt so much more free to quote unquote make mistakes or fall on my face, and while that does still scare me, the idea of that it's it's not crippling the way it was before. It's
0: survivable, yeah, it's survivable. Yeah. Do you so you start doing the podcast? When do you see a turning point where it starts catching on? Uh, the Onion
1: AV Club started writing about it and covering it weekly, and they chose it as one of their favorite podcast of the year, I think in, might have even been in 2011. Nathan Rabin was uh, the, the head writer for the AV club and he just really became a champion for it. And then other uh, comics started reaching out to me and saying how much they liked it. Uh, Jen Kirkman and uh, just a, a bunch of other comics that um, uh, I, I just felt really blessed. Um, I felt like, oh, This is where I'm supposed to be Hmm. right now. And I got emails from people that would say things like, I was planning on killing myself on Saturday night, and I stumbled across your podcast, and I changed my mind. And reading something like that, and and the podcast was not bringing in any money at that point, and my ex saw I'd printed that out, and my ex went to the printer for something and saw that. And she said, keep doing this podcast. Don't worry about whether or not it makes money. You know, we'll, we'll be okay. And um, we'll be forever grateful uh, to, to her for, for doing that. So it probably took about... I don't know, three, four years before I could start supporting myself doing it. But there was just a sense that this is where I'm supposed to be. And if I was not sober, not only would I not do the podcast because I would have nothing to share, but um, I wouldn't have that kind of feeling of this is where I'm supposed to be. You know how that, when we get we get help, it helps us kind of tune into, does this feel right?
0: Yeah. Uh, we become pretty good arbiters of like what's good and bad. And, like, it's amazing that when you remove it and then also add a little bit of uh, life skills and tools, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like, I- I'm equipped. Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty good members of society.
1: And it's so funny because so much of it just goes back to shit we were taught in kindergarten. So, right. Share be nice, treat others the way you want to be treated, but then you throw in all the societal pressures of you got to pay rent, you know, you got a sex drive, you know, all these other things that complicate it. And then we develop these bad coping mechanisms because we see it all around us. And all of these, these other people seem to be getting ahead, but we don't know what they're feeling inside.
0: Well, that, and I've heard someone once talk about how, he said, I couldn't understand how people were so equipped to be good employees and a a good partner in a relationship, good husbands and, and a good father. He's like, and I realized that it was born out of experience of going through trial and tribulation, walking through it, accruing techniques in which to deal with life on life's terms and slowly kind of leveling up through this experience. He's like, because... The first sign of trouble, I drank, mm-hmm. so I stunted that. I anesthetized myself, so I never, you know, whenever I started drinking at fourteen, fifteen, I never accrued those skills, and that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah,
1: I, I look at at, I look at it as really just tools, and you know, the the, the higher power thing, I I don't know. What it is that's out there that helps me, but I just know when I use these tools, I feel peace, and so I guess peace is kind of my higher power, and um, I know the things that I need to do to feel peace in in my life, and I trust that process and I and for me, um, that's kind of what what faith is. I hope there's something out there, but it I don't need to be assured that. There's something out there because my life's for the
0: most part working. I I don't want I I you know people are always like God give me a sign. If I got a real sign from God, I don't know how I could continue on. <laughs> if he literally was like Josh, it's me. It's all good. Go for it. I'd be like, what the fuck? I'd be like, that's it. No more podcasts. No more. Yeah. Like I'm just <laughs> I'm just gonna walk this earth. Yeah. Because what does it matter, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. So what what do you find thinking of some of my favorite episodes and you think about like the Tiffany Haddish episode mm-hmm. of your pod and I thought I knew her from her celebrity and then you listen to the podcast and you go, "Oh my god, it's so much deeper than that." What do you, because of the nature of your podcast, where you're talking about people's trauma and their life experience and their deepest sorrow and their greatest joy, and and it's a must listen to anyone who's listening to this pod, that episode especially. And Tiffany is so beautifully vulnerable and honest and breaks down in parts. What are you, as the interviewer, thinking throughout that experience? Are you trying to stay present? Are you like, oh my God, this is gold? Are you? There,
1: my brain is kind of split into two people. The 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 person sitting in front of her being present, and you know keeping it a conversation. And there's always a little part of me that's the producer that is like, "Oh, people are going to love this," or "Oh, I'm going to have to edit that part out." Yes. So it, it's very similar, I'm sure you know this, when you're doing stand-up. There's a part of you that's delivering jokes and there's another part of you that is going, oh, where'd that person get that ugly shirt?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you, so what are your, what do you think are some of your misconceptions about mental illness that people have?
1: That it can't be managed. Um, that there's one cure for it. There's, there's one solution. Um, that we should be ashamed of it, that it's weakness, that um, that we just need to change our attitude and everything will be better. That we can pray it away. Um, I, yeah, I would say that 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 there's just a single solution to it is uh, is a myth, and I think it's pretty obvious now uh, as society becomes more enlightened that it's not a weakness to ask for help. It's actually a sign of bravery and intelligence. You know, if you think of a general, if he was or she was losing on the battlefield, would saying, no, I got this, and risking the lives of everybody because they're too proud or stubborn to call in reinforcements. Is that a smart general
0: Mm, probably not. No. When when you start, when the podcast becomes popular and you're dealing with the subject matter that you're dealing with, was there ever a fear that people would start looking at you like uh, have a bit of a savior complex with you, like where people would reach out looking for you to, to fix them?
1: That was a fear that, that uh, not only that, but then I would start to believe – in it, and I would become somebody that thought of themselves as a guru. And so I very consciously uh, sought to dispel that on the on the podcast. well, I do think uh, I have a lot of experience and a lot of it can be beneficial in sharing with other people, I say in the introduction to every episode, I am not a therapist. This is not a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's a waiting room that doesn't suck. And I feel like that kind of sets it out. I have very strong opinions about certain issues, but, ooh, excuse me, but I am also open to to constructive criticism and uh, being enlightened by people. I'm fortunate to, to have psychiatrists and psychologists that listen, researchers, and they'll send me stuff. Um, people in the uh, trans community have really helped enlighten me. I knew nothing. I actually used the word she-male early on in an episode, not even realizing what an awful word that is. That's how little I knew. Um So, yeah, I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job of of not becoming uh, a guru, but I'm sure I have moments where I lapse and people are cringing. But for the most part, I I think I keep it in check. And the other thing that I do is I talk about my foibles and my mistakes, and that's, I think, uh, a good thing not only for me, but for the listener to remind them that I'm just a guy trying to do the best that he can, and I still make mistakes
0: yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. The way I got turned on to your podcast was through my friend Fallon, who I've had on the pod, who is a trans woman mm-hmm. who found so much, uh, just uh, sort of relief in listening to the podcast. Please
1: and, put uh, her in touch with me. Yeah. I,
0: I need more uh, trans guests. She's the best. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant story. And, um, And yeah, I mean, just to your and I think, too, to a certain extent, like, don't you feel as a kid we were sort of promised? Like Alain de Botton, who's uh, sort of a modern-day philosopher, talks about, like, It seems as though as kids, we're promised that if we work hard, we will find a profession that not only financially takes care of us, but also sort of meets all of our creative and deep needs as a a professional. And then we'll meet a partner who will satisfy us in every way. And how that's so rarely true. But then also, for some of us, we do get it, and it's still not enough. Right. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can be scary when you start to get what it is that you want and you don't feel what you thought you were going to feel. And again, to go back to the support groups, those are the things that, that, that fill me up, not necessarily the support group itself, but the byproducts of the things they taught me to do in the support groups to help somebody else, to call somebody when I'm afraid, uh, to call somebody who's struggling to see how they're doing, uh, to make coffee, to set up chairs when I really don't even want to be at the meeting.
0: It's amazing, though, how much self worth you can get from something as small as making the coffee for it, it, a
1: group of dudes. It really, it really is. And it continues to surprise me because I think my addict brain is so wired that I, 90% of the times, still view these things that make me feel great afterwards, I still view them as a hassle when I'm about to go do them. Oh, yeah. That's a testament to how strong I think alcoholism and and addiction are. That it's a a really fucked up CGI that's so believable. It's so believable.
0: I remember when I walked into the rooms and the guy said to me, so simply, if you want self-esteem, do esteemable acts. (laughs) It's the first time anyone had ever said... I walked around for 21 years thinking, I just hate myself. And of course, I'm not self-centered because I just think about how awful I am all day. And they were like, no, no, no. If you walk around thinking about how great you are or how shit you are, you're self-centered. Yeah. I couldn't believe it.
1: Both sides of the same coin (laughs) Yeah, because they're about self-obsession. Much like the way uh, thinking as I did for many years, that the the way to, to safety and security was to be impressive. Mm. But that's just a way of performing. That's not authenticity. That's turning other people into an audience rather than people that we're on the same level with, who's walls are down as our walls are down and that we're bonding over our struggles and our embarrassments and our shames rather than our victories. That's why I don't go on Facebook. Not not only do I find it boring, but I just see so much of the people trying to impress each other. Uh, yeah, there are pockets where people are bonding and being real and authentic and letting their walls down, but um, it's it, it can be really uh, kind of a... Uh, a depressing trap to 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 find that.
0: Yeah, because everyone's a little sad. Yeah. And not enough people are talking about it.
1: Everybody feels like I'm not doing something right. I'm not enough. I don't do enough. I don't have enough. I'm fucked. I'm behind the eight ball and I got to scramble uh, otherwise yeah. I'm going to die uh, toothless uh, alone in a mobile home filled with regret.
0: Not even a double wide.
1: Oh, God, no. A single. I think that that does, that goes without sound. saying. On <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> air conditioned.
0: Oh, man. In Arizona.
1: In Arizona. The windiest part of Arizona.
0: Yes. Yeah. Just a dry, hot wind. Yeah. It's Filled like,
1: with lizards. It's
0: like God's farts. Really. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Last question. Ask sure. everyone on the pod this. What are your one or two Paul Gilmartin commandments, truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else.
1: Find your authenticity. Our, it's, it's one with spirituality. To me, spiritual, spirituality is the most authentic thing that, that we can do because we'll feel peace when we're authentic And that, to me, is the sign that I look for that I'm doing things right when I feel peace. I heard somebody say in a support group one time, I know I've made the right decision when I feel peace afterwards. Um, So that, I think that would be it. You know, obviously treat other people the way that you want to be treated yourself. Um, But if you don't find out what your needs are, if you don't find out what your boundaries are, if you don't honor your feelings and find the right tools to deal with them, you're never going to find your authenticity. And most of us need help to find out what our needs are. It's so ridiculous. But like you talked about when you walked into that room and you didn't know why you felt the way you were and what was missing, but you hurt other people. So it's, it's like a conference on how to, how to grow up and feel what we want to feel.
0: Yeah, my favorite quote is a guy says, you didn't tell me what was wrong with me, you told me what was wrong with you. Yeah. And I identified.
1: And I did the math. And you'll find out what's right with you, which also helps you find your authentic self, you
0: know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. Dude, thank you. I can't wait to have you on my pod. I'm down. Let's do it up. Oh, man. Come on. How about that? Feelings, thoughts. Right? This is it, man. This is what it is to live on this earth and feel things and to know that you're not alone, man. That we're in this, we're all in this together. I don't think anyone gets off scot-free. Maybe The Rock. Maybe, maybe Dwayne Johnson works, you know, works out his, his body to such an extreme level that he, that anxiety and depression, they're, they're afraid. They're like, oh no, they're, <laughs> we can't. he's too we don't want to inhabit that body it's too muscular it scares us we're gonna get we're, we're gonna get beat up in there but maybe not i'm sure the rock gets the blues every now and then i don't know i follow him on instagram i really look up to him he's just so positive and he works out so hard and then he has these epic cheat meals he, he, he has homemade chocolate chip cookies that he spoons peanut butter on top of. And that sounds delicious. Have you ever done that? Because you get the sweet from the chocolate chips and the salty from the peanut. Don't get me started. Um, guys, subscribe to the Mental Illness Happy Hour. You won't regret it. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And thank you, Paul, for doing the pod. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Have a great rest of your life. Bye.